my name is Marissa Conway. I'm the co-founder of the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy, and we are here today with the Center for International Studies and Diplomacy at SOAS, um, and I am sitting next to Dr. Jennifer Cassidy, who is a um, departmental lecturer in global governance and diplomacy at the University of Oxford, and she literally wrote the book on gender and diplomacy. Very exciting to have her here. And the Bertha Lutz Award winner, um, Professor Sylvia Bashevkin, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto. Um, she ooh, was named in 2005 the Canada's Most Powerful Women Top 100 Award by the Women's Executive Network. That's lovely. Um, That's what happens if you do a lot of media work. <laughs> so we are just going to have a conversation about women in diplomacy with two of the leading experts on women in diplomacy. So aside from that very quick intro, I will kind of let you guys jump in and describe your work and what you're up to. Um, yeah, should we start with you, Sylvia? Sure. Thanks very much, Marissa. It's uh, wonderful to be here with you. My work has uh, focused on women as a diplomatic leader, in particular with my book on four uh, U.S. women foreign policy decision makers that came out with Oxford in 2018, Women as Foreign Policy Leaders. Um, and I've also worked on questions that have to do with whether women elites in northern countries make much difference to policies towards the global south. So we did a piece back in 2014 in International Political Science Review that tries to set out some of the big questions in the field of um, gender and foreign policy, including which women make a difference. Does it matter whether women are from right wing or uh, left of center parties? Uh, which professional backgrounds seem to be conducive uh, to their taking um very pro-equality stances on behalf of women and girls in the global south. Uh, so this is an area in which I've been interested uh, for, for more than 10 years, and I'm delighted that there are now more scholars interested in these questions. Do you want to describe kind of what you're working on right now? Um, and I'm very interested to hear particularly about your thoughts and findings on this idea of um, Western female leadership in politics and diplomacy and how that, if any, is there an impact on the global south? My kind of angle that I'm coming at this is with feminist foreign policy, and I feel like that's a really big question for feminist foreign policy at the moment right now, is it's um, the conversation is happening in majority in Western countries and the global north. How is this kind of limiting in a sense? And what, what direction feminist foreign policy should take? And can it truly be transformative if we're not including the global south? So that is my framing, um, although it's slightly paralleled not exactly the same with diplomacy let's let's start there i'm really interested in this let's start there and then sure. and then i'll swing back to you jen so i looked at uh, some oecd data on uh expenditures on equality focused uh, overseas aid and because the article was published in 2014 i would like to see scholars uh look at more updated data uh, but it did suggest that when left-of-center parties, for example, when New Labour won in 1997 in the UK, that it did make a difference in terms of the pro-equality direction of British overseas aid, uh, that there was more discursive emphasis on women and girls, reproductive health, uh, educational opportunities, employment opportunities, than prior to the 1997 elections here. And that seems to be similar to, for example, uh, cases such as Canada, where it's not just the fact that Canada currently has a capital L liberal federal government that seems to make a difference, but also we have a minister of global affairs, the Honorable Christopher Freeland, 
who identifies very strongly as a feminist, who attributes her feminist commitments to her mom's example as a feminist uh, legal activist. And so uh, the difference in Canada, for example, between Canada's unwillingness to uh, support women's reproductive choice in the global south under a series of capital C conservative governments contrasts very clearly uh, with the willingness of Canada under the leadership of Christopher Inland uh, as, uh, as foreign minister to try and work with other countries to compensate for the withdrawal of support uh, for women's reproductive health by the United States since uh, the election of Donald Trump. So I do think that party in power matters. And for us as political scientists, I think it's important to study that across a variety of systems and over a significantly longer time period than I was able to do in an article published in 2014. Really interesting. Okay, your turn, Jen. Do you want to give us the rundown of what you're doing and your work and all of that? Um, well, not, not, nothing as extensive <laughs> as what we just heard, but which is fascinating and I've read all your work and I'm a big fan sitting across the, the, the table. Um, so my primary area of research is actually digital diplomacy and technology and diplomacy um, and that's what um, I received my PhD in but um, I have been a former diplomat for a number of years before beginning the, the, the PhD and my first posting was in Ireland's mission to the UN in New York and I had a phenomenal female ambassador and she really shaped how I viewed diplomacy and what lens I saw it through and and we can get into that later some of her stories which are you know incredible and she shared them for me to share so I'm not sharing them on her just on her behalf but I think it was the first year of my PhD I just wanted some light reading on gender and diplomacy as you do some weekend reading to get away from the technology um so I did like any good scholar does and I just turned to google and I typed in the words gender and diplomacy this is 2014 and what came up was not, let's say diplomatically, that aesthetically pleasing on the screen. Um, so there was the first three titles were Diplomatic Wives, the second were, was Diplomatic Ladies, and the third was Diplomatic Wives, the Undercover World of Diplomacy. Mm. So that kind of made me see red, and I went to my supervisor's meeting on digital diplomacy and he said, okay, I'll see you in two weeks. I was like, no, 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 we have a problem. You're going to want to sit down for this. And I said, there is no literature on gender and diplomacy. Didn't seem as shocked as I anticipated, but although I didn't actually have to make the big massive disclaimer, I didn't write the book. I edited the volume. Many, many voices were heard in there. Um, So I did that. So he... Um, helped me and he's a great ally helped me bring the book proposal to to Routledge and yes got some phenomenal voices in there and it really was trying to also get many varying uh, perspectives from us that was one of the key aspects of it but the first aim was just to get the literature out there that's all I could think of and but it turned into of course because I was doing it alongside the PhD three core aims so I'll just briefly discuss because we can dip into them the first was really to not really but clearly to uh, expose the gender of diplomacy now I wanted the book title to be the gender of diplomacy but I was told that wouldn't work as well and I had no experience with publishers so it was the gen it's gender and diplomacy my essential thesis is the gender of diplomacy and by that I mean that diplomacy itself has a gender um, and that gender is very distinct from biological sex um, and it's based on the um, gender characteristics and that of the male characteristics. And this is from empirical evidence, um, you know, strength, rationality, objectivity, even toll came out in the data. These are the ones that are promoted within the diplomatic sphere, you know, whether women take those characteristics on or not. Uh, so that was the first. Uh, the second was to shed light on the historical involvement of women 
in diplomacy, d- uh, despite of perhaps in many instances them being written out of history or overlooked in history. You know, uh, d- in this case, we did touch a bit on uh, diplomatic wives, but you know, w- women as queens, how they also sculpted uh, diplomatic history in that respect. And also quite early on history, there is there's a chapter on Ireland from the then uh, Irish ambassador to Japan, where it's from a uh, marriage ban to the present day. And my grandmother actually worked in the civil service. She still has the slip where when she got married, you had to retire from your job. And my grandmother is still alive and well. Um, and there's just two, two ticks that you could write, reason for leaving job, married or new job and married and yeah and she is just one of the most intelligent women I've ever met but had to leave her job and that was that and that was not Ireland being Ireland and I love Ireland but you know we have we only shifted quite recently towards the progressive nature of the state and the third and final one was to examine the current state of women in diplomacy despite of the various obstacles that persist to this day and this is where I also would rather like to see more research um, come in on it and it's certainly where um, that's why I'm so fascinated <laughs> with your work where it comes in really looking at the specifics and not looking at well how many women but where are the women so one of the chapters by Anne Towns and Brigitte Nicholson it's um, phenomenal but they quantitatively map 40 states um, and the ambassadors the, the countries that women ambassadors around the world and, and they look at well okay we have so many women ambassadors but where are they and the data shows that they're not getting Paris they're not getting Geneva they're not getting New York they're not getting Washington they're still not getting these power postings so I think you know in many respects we still need to work on the numerical and I'll cease my James Joyce Ulysses stream of consciousness in, that, in a moment but we still need to work on the numerical aspect but the substantive aspect particularly questions that were just raised such as you know who exactly you know as, as you were saying who exactly influence on them what parties does it come from what does that matter I really think and it's so great to see the, the debate shifting and changing to these more precise things that we can really get our feet I would say feet into that's weird um, teeth into is that the phrase um, yeah and I'm concluding my James Joyce Ulysses. But. So this makes me think a lot of power, which I love talking about, <laughs> thinking about. Um, I think with, again, feminist foreign policy, because that's my world that I'm coming from, so much of um, trying to rethink foreign policy from a feminist perspective is really trying to get to the root of power imbalances and power dynamics. And I feel like I, I keep hearing these like different... Um, themes come into play about like women accessing power through diplomacy in various ways like historically perhaps as wives and over time it's become much more institutionalized and then even then the women who are in what positions do they get access to where are they posted etc so I was just wondering if you guys wanted to kind of touch on that and what you have seen um, play out in terms of that sort of yeah access to power Sure. I mean, I I certainly think there's a hierarchy, and I think that um, feminist diplomatic historians have shown us uh, very clearly how in the sort of early modern era of the salon, the diplomatic salon, uh, well-connected white aristocratic women uh, had some access uh, to international affairs decision-making, which they as a group largely lost once we had the institutionalization of this professional diplomatic service, uh, peopled largely by tall white men uh, of a particular social class as well. And so this is something that we've seen in many different uh, political systems. It's not unique to the UK. 
although it's been very well documented here by scholars like Helen McCarthy. And so um, the, the, the fact that women have been receiving under this professionalized diplomatic uh, service so few of the top drawer positions is really eye-opening because if you read the early research, for example, on the UK or on the US by Philip Nash, you can see that, uh, for example, lots of the early women US ambassadors came to Northern Europe because they were partisan appointments, often by uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. They were good Democrats with a capital D, and they were often sent to the countries of Northern Europe, which were not particularly important to the United States, but they were considered to be places where women could be accepted in, um, you know, sort of middle class and upward society, right? These were fairly egalitarian societies. And even there, these women diplomats from the U.S. tended to do things that the men didn't do. They tended to go on cod fishing expeditions or other Arctic expeditions to kind of engage in what I call people-to-people diplomacy because they really didn't get too far in the official uh, channels of power, even though they had the imprimatur of the president of the United States and they were from his party and so on. So I think that there are still a lot of challenges. And I would argue that in the contemporary period, we're facing an additional challenge, which is so much diplomat, so much sort of diplomatic expertise is now considered to reside in military bureaucracies. And particularly in the United States, we see so much diplomatic expertise as being a kind of um, considered part of a, a partisan um, IOU system where very generous donors to presidential candidates end up being diplomats. And so the opportunities to prof- for professional diplomats now that women are finally moving up and finally don't have to face a marriage bar, the opportunities are actually very constrained because there's so much authority that has now left the room, if you will, left the diplomatic um, hierarchy and moved over to a military hierarchy or moved over to a kind of party fundraising, um, what I would call patronage system. That really leaves very little room for professional women diplomats. I've never heard of that uh or I guess in terms of nepotism, I suppose that's this always rings true. But I really like that framing of this like patronage. Like you get to kind of, as with many things in politics, buy your way in, and then that elbows out the kind of more career diplomats who probably I'm thinking of the Trump administration are far more suited to be in those positions than friends of Trump. But I'll refrain from going down that rabbit hole. <laughs> How about you, Jen? What are your thoughts on power? Well, just to even just note on that point, it would be interesting to see the academic sphere, but interesting to see a comparative analysis between, you know, for example, in Ireland, we don't have uh, political postings. It's just you work your way up the system. So it'd be interesting to see, uh, you know, comparative analysis between those uh, ministries where they those positions of power are given for the patronage, because I certainly agree with that thesis, um, and those which, you know, MFAs which don't have that. So I think that would be... Like note to self or note to everyone listening because I probably won't get around too much. <laughs> so someone else can take it up. Um, but re- no. So a few, a few, a few kind of. Con- I'll try to be concise. Points on the issues of power. One is um, a kind of anecdote was when so the the lectureship I now hold. I did that masters a decade ago. Um, and yeah, I never even thought I would get into it. And now here I am. Like, I never, never even thought I would get accepted. And I'm like, well, hello, I'm your lecturer. But after that, I, after that master's, when I loudly proclaimed I'd never do a PhD and then came back a few years later to the same department. But I went, as I said, my first posting was Ireland's mission to the UN New York. And there's six committees in, in the UN. The first committee being 
nuclear regard nuclear military we can let we can call it that I forget the exact labels and I was there the most junior to the junior but so note taking and doing reviews so I was there during a the first in the general assembly and it was the third committee which is human rights and I would say I'm guesstimating here but pretty accurately because I took a good look for a few hours around this hall it was around 70 or 80 percent female I was like wow we have really progressed I was like everything I thought I knew was a lie equality is, is here and it's here to stay I was delighted with myself thinking you know this is going to be a great career and so we went for lunch <laughs> came back into the room and the first session first committee was meeting which was nuclear military and all I saw were suits and ties I was like oh the question has just changed. I see. It is now a different angle. And I would say even more, 80, 90 percent, that you could you could pick the women out in General Assembly who were sitting in, in the and that included the junior of the junior of the junior. Um, which leads me to actually one point here, which is the same chapter of Anne Towns and Brigitte Nicholson. When they were looking at the women ambassador uh, postings, quantitatively mapping them, they also looked at junior diplomatic postings um, in violent and war-torn regions. And they saw that overall in these 40 countries, and the 40 countries were the top OECD countries. Um, so a small database, again, it would be great to see it, you know, widened. And again, probably a, that's an, probably an request people out there to, to engage in. Um, but what they saw overwhelmingly that junior diplomats were not getting these postings and why why this matters, but I will say to my students' dissertation with the question, so what? You've given me the data, so what? Why does this matter? Well, it matters because we've seen that these violent and war-torn regions, for better or for worse, you know, we can have another thesis on this, but these are seen as promotional postings and seen as putting in your time. So if women as third secretaries or as, you know, junior ent entry level are not getting these positions, they're already on the back foot. So I think that's, you know, ties with power and ties with military uh, aspect. I think that's very important. And then finally, I'll go to one of the, and, and it very much links to um, what has been said. Um, it's another anecdote by, I'm just get, taking other people's work, which I'm clearly naming them for. So I'll, I'll, I'm giving all credit where credit's due. But Jane Marius wrote a chapter. Um, she was the UK's ambassador to Yemen and Iran, two separate postings. And now she's the co-director for the counterterrorism unit in the Foreign Office here. And so when I approached her to write a chapter, she was at the time the UK ambassador to Yemen. And I really wanted a chapter which looked at what's it like to be a female ambassador to a country that doesn't have participatively gender equality as one of its pillar posts. So you're looking at not only the kind of institutionalized or the gender institutionalization of the foreign ministry itself of the sending state. I'm doing a lot of hand actions here, by the way, but a lot of sending state. But you're also looking at the barriers they face within the receiving state um, as a whole. But when I got the chapter back, I was kind of also taken aback. It was quite positive. And I was like, oh, this is not the vibe I want to give. I don't want a positive vibe coming off in this. First. This is about bringing down the patriarchy. But no, she changed my view, which is always good to know um, and always good to have the open mind on. And she brought in a lot of examples that, you know, uh, it were mentioned about the cod fishing and really engaging with these people to people and she looked at it from a different angle different lens and saying yes there's certain aspects which I certainly couldn't engage in but let's take a you know a different look at it and there was many aspects that I could engage in particularly in places like Yemen and Iran where the male ambassadors couldn't go into these communities where there weren't women couldn't get with information gathering being one of the key 
pillar stones of, of diplomacy. You know, really talk to the people, um, really get involved with the community. And there's numerous examples that, that, that she mentioned. Now, there were other examples where they were going into a, uh, a state dinner and all the ambassadors were going in and the two bodyguards said, absolutely no way, you're not going in, you should go into the separate room with the wives. She said, I represent Her Majesty the Queen of the United Kingdom. And they said, we don't care. This is all nearly verbatim actually so I'm not <laughs> being hyperbolic and the Brazilian and the Spanish ambassador got in front and behind them they said well wherever she's going we're going and so the bodyguard said okay everyone into the room with the ambassadors yeah there was huge there was quite direct confrontation of it but yeah that's a few little points on power and but it's so broad um you've kind of touched on this already Jen but I was just wondering if you wanted to share sort of what drew you to this field of study in the first place what your like origin story is with this kind of research sure I you know I live in Canada and it's been described by Hugh McClellan Margaret Atwood many writers as the attic of the United States you know the people who live upstairs and look down on the people in the house below and so I was really struck by the fact that the United States had promoted um, by presidential appointment, a number of very important women to senior foreign policy positions. And I hadn't seen any comparative analysis. I hadn't seen any comparative biography. And there are a lot more political scientists and foreign policy specialists in the United States than in Canada. It's 10 times the population of Canada. And so I thought, well, you know, I'm sure that study will come along. And lo and behold, it did not. So I thought, well, I think I'll just do it myself. And so I proposed to study in the summer of 2008, this is before the appointment of Hillary Clinton because Obama hadn't won yet as president. So I thought, okay, you know what, I'll, I'll do a study that asks questions about the influence of women as foreign policy leaders. Do they make a difference? What's their relationship to women as a group? Do women in the global so- north make a difference to women in the global south? And at that point, I was, I was probably thinking of focusing primarily on Finland, uh, Sweden, Norway, the U.S., countries that had appointed significant numbers of women to top jobs. Um, And then when Clinton was appointed um, as U.S. Secretary of State, I suddenly had this ability to do a qualitative analysis of two Republican appointees, Jean Kirkpatrick and Condoleezza Rice, as well as two Democrats, Madeleine Albright and Hillary Rodham Clinton. So I somehow wound up through a a fluke of, of, you know, history through presidential appointments with two um, women uh, appointees from each of the major U.S. parties and after doing uh, a series of kind of broad brush strokes in the field, thought, okay, I'll try and do um, kind of comparative analysis of those those four decision makers that's embedded in the larger thematic questions about how they related to women as a group, where do they stand on questions of war and peace, to what extent do we see support for this argument that um, women who uh, sort of take on foreign policy leadership tend to absorb the sort of masculine norms um, of the field. Um, so I, you know, I decided to take on a whole series of questions through the prism of four decision makers. And I decided to work on the U.S. because not only as a Canadian am I living north of the U.S. and watching what spills over into our world from, from the United States, but also I had so much more memoir material that I could use than was available about women in Northern Europe. So I looked at the literature in Finland, in Norway, in Sweden, And there was nothing comparable, for example, to Madeleine Albright's willingness to write about a half a dozen books, right, to reflect on her experiences. There's simply less, you know, like Canada, Northern Europe is a more, I think, deferential, less effusive um, culture. 
you know, Nordic norms are showing not um, those that would encourage somebody to produce a half dozen books on their own. And so I just didn't have as much raw material about other cases, including my own country, including in Canada, where we now have our third woman foreign minister in office, but her two predecessors, uh, Flora MacDonald and Barbara McDougall, have not written uh, memoirs, and we also don't have major biographies. So it's very hard uh, to analyze their own self-images and how they were received and so on when there's very little primary or secondary literature. Well, I know we're tiny anyway, but yeah, I think we only have well, Mary Robinson, who wrote the foreword to the to the um, to the book, who's also my my idol. She knows that I've said it to her, but she's the only one who's written really a memoir that we can kind of the Irish state can look to for, for female leadership. I definitely think the U.S. is in abundance with that. Kind of briefly mention this and what you're just saying, Sylvia. Um, but I think this question of how much women have to kind of assimilate to existing structures and behavioral patterns and, and ways of doing things um, is a question a lot of people chew over. Um, I think it's a big kind of feminist question that I've noticed as long as I have been on my feminist journey of like how much change can you make in the system versus and you know the values you may have to sacrifice by being on the inside versus staying on the outside. You've got your values but obviously less access to shifting institutional um patterns um so i was just wondering both of you based on what you have seen if you can just kind of comment on the degree to which this process happens and especially with these four women what do you think um if if i'm assuming there were but the kind of compromises that they had to make to be successful or be viewed as successful or um and i feel like that's incredibly contextual with like the issues they were dealing with at the time as well this is the one of the questions is if they want to at all and i think what really mm-hmm. struck out for me in Sylvia's work was i'm going to be really irish here and mix up the second name but jean kirkpatrick not fitzpatrick kirkpatrick yes <laughs> yeah i always say i'm i always have to check my <laughs> um you know for me quite you know it perhaps when I, the first time i read it was like perhaps i'm projecting that it was like, oh no, she's taking on these masculine norms and values. But I was like, I had to sit back and think, am I just projecting here and wanting that to be the case? Or is it just simply, you know, this, some people just don't wish to carry that or don't feel that, like it's a need. And, you know, that's I, something I struggle with, whether whether to judge that or not. And I don't try and, judge, you know, judge it because it's everyone's own journey to, not to get all, you know, philosophical, it's everyone, everyone's own journey to take. But that particularly, for me, that was quite an, it's quite an extreme case. And well, regarding a number of her, her foreign policy of objectives, they were quite in the extreme. But that's really all I have to say. And it mainly, mainly posing more questions. I think that's, that begs like a, a maybe a sub question of that then as well as like as we talk about this how do we talk about it in a way that doesn't reinforce this very like binaried way of understanding gender traits in power and that we can kind of discuss it in a way that like sheds light on it rather than kind of yeah yeah assumes that every woman who's in power is going to automatically be flying a flag and if they don't we shouldn't judge and yeah I think my studies suggest there are many varieties of feminism. Uh, Democrats in the U.S. clearly differ from Republicans, and generations of women also matter. Uh, so I think in the case of um, certainly uh, Kirkpatrick, um, Albright, and Rice, we can see three women who were political scientists uh, teaching in uh, prestigious universities, 
who cultivated uh, enormous uh, personal presence and persuasiveness. Uh, none of these women came out of the military, and it's rare for women uh, to, to come out of militaries in uh, democratic systems. And um, in Hillary Rodham Clinton's case, I always remind my students that one of her first jobs was as a law professor at the University of Arkansas in the mid-1970s. So she also had a lot of experience as a public speaker, as a very persuasive um, you know, a teacher of criminal law and other fields. So I think that uh, in the case of all four women that I was studying in the U.S., I wasn't at all convinced that they somehow became more stereotypically masculine when they joined these cabinets. I think these presidents appointed them because they were very focused and very committed and very assertive individuals long before they ever got into cabinet. And so the notion that they would somehow take on different personal characteristics you know, because a president appointed them to cabinet, I think it's highly unlikely because no president is likely to appoint someone to a, a cabinet post of the significance of U.S. Secretary of State or National Security Advisor or Ambassador to the U.N., who's likely to be a pushover and not assertively represent national interests. So I think these women had what you could call pretty muscular personalities. Albright particularly talks about how the breakup of her marriage caused her to take a, a much more feminist lens on her life and to kind of step up to the plate and um, and recognize some of the problems that Dukakis faced or that Geraldine Ferraro faced, the, the problem of not being perceived to be strong, that this was really not an asset at all. It was a major liability for public leaders. So I think each of them went through whatever um, process one goes through in life uh, to become a very confident and ambitious um, networker. And I think that that worked exceedingly well for them, as it does for men in uh, diplomatic leadership. And I think the Democrats differ from the Republicans in that these Democratic appointees like Albright and Clinton were much more identified with women as a group, both in the global north, in their own country, and in the global south. And so that's you know, part of this sort of collective or group consciousness that generally accompanies people of a more progressive political persuasion. That's not to say that Rice and Kirkpatrick wouldn't see themselves as small L liberal feminists, and I think they wanted very much to be treated fairly and all the rest of that that was important to them, but they had a, a, a rather different approach to sort of what we could now call transnational feminism, equality mobilization, and a very different view of it. I just, this is me just musing out loud, but I don't know whether, I definitely agree with the thesis of that it's the personality and, you know, particularly of regarding the political scientists and their works published pre, these four, these three women in particular, published pre-appointee, um, you know, what's one of the reasons their, you know, their core papers were picked up by administration staff and said, well, look, put on the president's desk or, you know, the president-elect uh, and said, look, you should read this. This person is in line with these views, you know, and this would be getting deep into, you know, philosophy and, and gender, uh, you know, nature over nurture. But whether these strong personalities knew that the way to proceed was... I think you do become what you think, and yeah, this is getting quite airy-fairy, but you know, whether these strong personalities knew that in order to succeed, you take on certain characteristics and you have to become bold and you have to become hardened, and this is what kind of emerges. I don't know whether that's a nature thing, but we won't go into the Hobbes and the Locke um, here at the moment. Um, I certainly would, just from personal experience, think that of myself. I think I would have hardened certainly, <laughs> to everyone out there, hardened certainly throughout the years just because I knew I had to. I don't really think that's my in my personality to be as hard as I've become, but it's just, and because I reflect on it so much, it's certainly an environmental thing that, that's shaped um, my character in that respect. One thing I think I, uh, to note in that, and, and again, this is more personal musings rather than empirical 
<laughs> base research. But I think this works up to a certain point. But and this is my reflection on the 2016 presidential election in the US. Yes, there's a variety of variables, which we, we will not go into, a, you know, a dissection of, of what went wrong or right. Let's let's be trying to be yeah. um, in, in the in the election. But, you know, we see it also with how people look at uh, or looked at Theresa May and also Angela Merkel, the way it's viewed in newspapers and discourse, that once you get to the position of power or, you know, attempt to take on or become the first US female president, you almost fall on your own sword because then you're not viewed as feminine enough. But, you know, I don't think people would have progressed as far as they would have in this environment had their personality not been so accustomed to the institutional characteristics of the gender of diplomacy or the gender of politics if they didn't, you know, take on these. But then when it gets to the very top, you're either judged on it or falling on your own sword for not being what people think you should be. Now, whether that's going against their true personality, I don't know. I'm not Freud. I'm not sitting here attempting to be is a, a different question. But I do think there's different judgments within the institutional. And then you get to the kind of very public sphere where if you're not viewed, um, you know, for better or for worse, I'm not, you know, well, I have my own views on that. But um, yeah, that's more personal musings, as I said, for, rather than empirical based research. <laughs> so the work that we're trying to do with CFFP is really kind of transform the institution of foreign policy. And our argument is that it is deeply patriarchal and it sustains rather than challenges systemic violence against a wide variety of people. Um, so in kind of taking this feminist approach to diplomacy, I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts on like what that feminist transformation of diplomacy might look like and how that might shift or change if we were to take these feminist values um, and try and enact them in a practical way um, to do diplomacy differently. Well, I think, you know, there's many different varieties of feminism, as there are for every different social movement that's out there. There's many environmentalisms. There are many varieties of indigenous rights mobilization and so on. Um, so I think one variety of feminist foreign policy would probably be what Madeleine Albright tried to champion in the 1990s, right? She tried to draw attention inside the U.S. cabinet uh, to violence against women and girls in Bosnia, and then in the case of Kosovo. And her efforts uh, to draw together initially a group of women U.S. Uh, women UN ambassadors when she was the US ambassador and then women foreign ministers when she was secretary of state they need to be recognized I think in the context of the fact that we hadn't had those networks before and that as my students often asked how did she manage to do that she could do it around her kitchen table there were not a lot of women UN ambassadors I think there were seven and there were very few women foreign ministers when she became the first woman secretary of state so she did try and draw those networks together and she did try and use them for the purpose of, for example, considering rape as a weapon of war or appointing the first ever woman chief prosecutor for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, a distinguished Canadian jurist named Louise Arbour. So I think that that is one historical precedent that we can look to, you know, that responds to the question of, okay, if women in civil society uh, organizations in Bosnia or Kosovo were trying to get the world's attention, and it was a, a you know a woman secretary of state who paid attention and tried to move the U.S. cabinet and tried to move the NATO allies. Then, then this speaks to some possibilities within the traditional world of what is known as foreign policy and diplomatic decision making. That's important, and we often forget about how sometimes that doesn't happen, even 
um, since Albright's uh, breakthroughs. Um, obviously, there are far more transformational possibilities. But, you know, I, I think that there's a, a spectrum along which we have to say, look, important progress has been made. However, there remain really significant challenges. And often we are extremely reliant on the presence of a single individual. And that's how, for example, in, in Canada, one can see even in, in the period where Justin Trudeau has been prime minister now since uh, 2015, we've had two foreign ministers, and we can see a clearly more feminist uh, emphasis uh, since Christopher Freeland's appointment. So I, I do argue in my book that social scientists grapple with this question of agency and structure. But we have to recognize there are some agents. There are some individual agents who make a difference, even within the traditional structures. They change the way we think about issues, the way we talk about issues. And so I try not to get too frustrated with the notion that there hasn't been any you know, alteration in the way things work, because I think there have been some transformative changes. And certainly the fact that Hillary Clinton talked about women and girls hundreds of times in many of her speeches, I think that helps to remind us that some individuals are trying to make a difference even within the parameters of a very traditional and uh, well-established regime. And I know I think that point of, well, for me in particular, and both my research and personally, the point of the individual really rings true. I spoke earlier about my first posting, Ambassador Anne Anderson, and who, you know, transformed even my, my view of it. And still today, there was, you could... I think count on one hand when I was in the General Assembly, the amount of women ambassadors in the room. I think there was nine at the time. And so this network diplomacy as well regarding you could have them around your kitchen table was very, and they, they actually had a network of women, the women ambassadors. It was very, very important. But what's what's extremely interesting about Anne Anderson, and I'm, as I said, I'm given full permission to relay these, sto- these uh, stories. But one of the things was when I was speaking with uh, my ministry, who I used to work for, and I brought up the point of, well, where are women posted? You know, they're not getting Geneva powers, etc. Brussels and they turned around to me and they said, but Jennifer, you know, we've had a woman ambassador to, to all those places. And I said, yes, but it's been the same woman. They're like, oh, we forgot you worked for us. I was like, yes. <laughs> so it was Anne Anderson and she had been the ambassador to all these um, countries. But what I find so inspirational about individuals like Anne Anderson and Mary Robinson, who said I've probably read the book around five times, was when you look, and this probably relates to our previous conversation of personality, when you look at, we we reflect on everything they've done under the lens of, or I used to, under the lens of, oh, well, they're Mary Robinson and they were Anne Anderson, but they weren't Mary Robinson or Anne Anderson as we know them now. And they weren't the courage of, of some of the decisions they made, the courage to take on, I don't know if I would have had that courage, to take on some of the challenges um, and obstacles that they faced, you know, knowing that it could have completely backlashed on their entire career and we look back and think well of course they did that you know but no it could have had huge consequences one key example being Anne Anderson when she was posted as a her first posting as a junior diplomat to Geneva and she asked for spousal pay for her husband and uh, the foreign affairs ministry said no we don't give spousal pay to men but what but you're giving all the spousal pay to wives and they're like yeah but their wives so you would think a state would back down but no fought her in court for I don't want to say how many months because I don't know the number of months but fought her for quite some time and we look back now and said of course again and Anderson but you know as a junior diplomat again I don't know I would like to think I'd have the courage I don't 
who knows if I was confronted with that, knowing the backlash that could have had on your career and that institutions close on one another. But she won the case um, and men were given spousal pay. And obviously, you know, Ireland's top diplomat, she just recently retired. She was the, the ambassador then to Washington, to the US as a whole after New York. Um, and it's the same with Mary Robinson, you know, uh, first female president of Ireland and, you know, one of her great quotes in her inauguration speech was you know today women instead of rocking the cradle rock the nation (laughs) I just as you can tell I am the biggest fan and but she our president doesn't hold power it's more of a a dignitary post the the Taoiseach the prime minister holds the power but her symbolism and the power that she created just through her narrative and her voice was you know institutionally altering policy altering society altering if that's even a phrase for Ireland as a whole she talked about contraception she talked about reproductive rights um, all of these things which were actually considered blasphemy which fun fact was just removed as an illegal act in Ireland last year which is off our agenda but just thought I'd add that in there as a footnote but it was criminal until last year which changed in a referendum but all these things were considered blasphemy and the backlash that she received from her family, you know, her memoirs off by heart, but her family and, you know, her, her town in the west of Ireland and even the community in in the university was huge. But, you know, she kept on pursuing and ended up, you know, absolutely changing the nation. You know, her name now is Manon Naharan, which in Gaelic means the mother of Ireland. Now, we could get into whether the mother of Ireland, but no, I take it as a very great, like, people... The respect is just, you know, and then said president, then Mary McAleese was president. And yeah, just complete. So the power of the individual doesn't answer your question in any way that I can. I just know. But the power of the individual, I think, is so, so key, not just, you know, transformative change, but also changing individuals. Like, as I said, the the, the effect that Anne Anderson had on me to the, to the point where I was like, no, I need to have a book on this. That can't be her story. You know that she probably didn't know I existed or had left diplomacy. You know, I was just off. She was off being an ambassador and I was going to off the radar but it had a huge effect on me but so that's that's definitely a core core aspect and then also you know ties along with that rights and resources and for the feminist foreign policy for me one of the key key phrases that stands out is nothing about them without them I know another like beauty of a phrase no I use that all the time it's just because you said it I mean I'll take on a tangent but Berlin was the first time I heard you say it almost a year ago when we launched our Berlin like business of yeah. CFFP which is bananas yeah, yeah. a year and a month ago and that's when I heard you say that for the first time I use it all the time now it's it's <laughs> just I think I'm pretty sure I took it off someone can I just also put that caveat there, there but I'm not sure who I would give them credit if I remembered and um, perhaps I didn't perhaps it was me um I definitely used it when I did the TEDx talk on the feminist foreign policy and that's where um well, Christina which is hilarious that was my, my I would say student would you call yeah. my student which is very odd um but I gave it to the TEDx talk on in Oxford on uh, why we need a feminist foreign policy and that was 2014 many moons ago but yeah rights resources and representation and nothing about them without them and and of course the caveat here is you don't just want women at the table discussing women issues that's massive caveat but still i think i think it's great of just a very good solid phrase of don't discuss anything because everything's about us well not about that says <laughs> to conclude everything's about us no that's certainly not but you know everything is a the personal the political let's all get Foucault on this but you know there's it's that doesn't have to be just relating to women's issues so for me that is probably the key central phrase of the feminist foreign policy in every country yeah Yeah, Yeah. 
Um, okay, so we're on the hour. Um, do you guys want to wrap up by maybe plugging a project you're working on right now or just highlight something you're excited about? I'm going to end on like a exciting note. I think I've just given all my cues to people <laughs> to, 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 to go out there and research on my behalf. Um, um, no, I'm just excited that I'm excited to be here and excited of all the work that the Centre for Feminist Foreign Policy are doing, which is just phenomenal trailblazers like in the field it's just brilliant to see this um and it's so great to see all this you know new work and new scholarship coming out and you know people taking up these more precise questions of not just how, like not just how many but you know where are the women and mm-hmm. one of the chapters one of the paragraphs that the editor said was a little too extreme when that I wrote and I was like no I think I'll keep it in because it was two weeks after the US presidential election mm. I was like no no this is staying it actually it was re-entered after the thing and I said I'm paraphrasing here my own words but you know if you're here if this is a book to persuade you this is not the book for you you know there's no necessity for persuasion here you know by all means we're on a steady track towards a non-gender diplomacy and this is not a debate for me um you know of course the various obstacles that persist to this day um despite of you know the deep-seated misogyny and sexism and, and everything that goes along with that but this is an issue of inevitability so it's we're here in many cases some cases we're still to, to to get there but you know we're not going anywhere and so we really need to see now where are we what is our role? What is our power? Mm-hmm. Um, and all these more precise, yeah, uh, empirical and grounding questions, which is just great to see happening. And yeah, as I said, I've given my cues to everyone to please go take up those research <laughs> topics. How about you? I think that there's been an astonishing and um, very um, reassuring level of public interest mm-hmm. in research on women diplomats. I think I've worked hard in my own work to try and um, make it accessible to a public audience. I've wanted high school students to be able to read my work and um, book clubs of, of people who aren't academics who can actually sit and think about a question a woman asked me at one public lecture a number of weeks ago, which was, what can I learn from your work that will help my daughter become a diplomat? or my granddaughter become a diplomat, right? To try and make sure that we speak to an audience which I think wants to see international affairs conducted in a way that's responsive to human rights, uh, to the look of the population that we see inside a subway car in cities around this world. And um, I I think that is a very encouraging sign that there is a great deal of academic interest as well as public interest. And I think as a scholar, um, I urge uh, students and colleagues to continue, you know, to work with that momentum that we're so fortunate to have for members of the public. I'll, I'll end with this story that gives me a lot of hope when I feel cynical, which is almost all the time these days. Um, but uh, like last summer, a little over a year and a half ago, I went to the NATO summit for their NATO Engagers conference. And NATO had partnered with Women in International Security to get a really good gender balance at this event. Um, so kind of a symptom of um, I think having feminist in our name, we often get a lot of female involvement in our events and everything, but not as many men. So um, it was almost 50-50 at this event. So I walked in to just this like 50-50, like I was seeing men in military uniforms and suits. And I was just, I feel like 
had the complete opposite of the stereotypical reaction to like a foreign policy venue. I was just like, men, how novel. This is amazing. Um, welcome. But, you know, I was chatting uh, just to anybody who listened about feminist foreign policy. Um, and and every single person I spoke to took me seriously, took feminist foreign policy seriously, was engaging, asking really um, detailed, intricate contextual questions about it and and it actually kind of blew me away because I was expecting some level of um, hesitancy or maybe eye rolling or because it was just such a diverse group of people and and I do think I am in somewhat of a feminist bubble most of the time um, but that just gave me so much hope that there's just this huge huge appetite for these kinds of conversations um, and there are so many people around the world just really kind of digging in and engaging with these topics and maybe if they're not doing the work themselves they're still very receptive and willing to kind of implement these changes 